Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to start a new series in 1 Peter, and I'm really, really excited about what we're going to look at together. Some have argued that 1 Peter is the most condensed, practical exposition of true gospel transformation that you'll find in all of the New Testament. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? So with that in mind, I, I, I kind of, it made sense to me that we would follow the gospel series that we began the year with, with a letter that is absolutely saturated with the gospel. In fact, I believe 1 Peter may give us one of the clearest picture of what it looks like when our faith truly comes alive. And isn't it fitting that Peter would be the author of such a book? Right? A, a disciple whose life was completely transformed by Christ. I mean, just think about what you know about Peter. He was a man who was impulsive and unpredictable, right? But he became a rock of steady faith. He was a pious Jew who became the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He, as we all know, betrayed his Savior. In the most crucial moment of his life. And then he became a martyr for that Savior. Giving his life for the one who set him free. He lived a life that gives us a picture of what it looks like when, when faith comes alive. He learned submission and compassion, courage, restraint. And, and I think he writes this letter calling all Christians to surrender their lives completely and fully to Christ. In fact, I think in a way, he's inviting us into a faith much like his own. Living a life that is completely transformed by Christ. But this is also a pastoral letter. He's, he's writing with real care and concern for his audience. He wants to encourage and, and reassure Christians who find themselves facing persecution. They were suffering because of their devotion to Christ. They were outcasts in a culture who ridiculed their values and beliefs. Which I think makes this letter really important to us as our own society has values and, and even legalizes principles that we would all agree would be inconsistent with a gospel-centered life. Our faith, whether we like it or not, has collided with our culture. <laughs> and, and something's got to give. So Peter's letter will, will challenge us to live God, good and godly lives, even if that causes us to experience the same kinds of suffering and persecution that his audience did when he wrote to them. He will urge us to live lives that look undeniably different than the world around us. And, and not out of reluctant obligation because, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. I'm talking about a life that, that willfully follows the leading of the Spirit. A life that is consistently conformed into the image of Christ. And so with that, I think what we'll find as we walk through this letter together is that, that Peter will challenge us to re-examine our acceptance of social norms. 
He will press into our tendency to compromise in order to avoid suffering. He wants us to be encountered by, changed by a true encounter with the living Christ. And so I want us to pray together as we walk through 1 Peter that our faith would come alive to the point that even in the time that we walk through this together during the spring, that if we would look at our lives today and fast forward to having completed this study together a few months from now, that it wouldn't look the same. There would be remarkable changes because our faith in new ways has come alive. And to me, that's so important. I want us to really dedicate this time before the Lord, not just this morning, but even as we walk through this series together. So I've asked Jeff and Brian to just stand where they are and pray, and then I will follow them as we open up God's Word together. So Jeff, you want to start us? Right, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read together beginning in uh, verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So we talked a little bit there in the beginning about Peter as the author and the dramatic change that God has made in his life. But let's think a little bit about the audience that he's speaking to. In this uh, first verse, we can see it's already a diverse group of people spread over a a fairly large uh, land in what would now be modern-day Turkey. So if you were to look at a map today, you would see that these areas occupy what is now modern-day Turkey. Turkey. So these people were spread over a a large area. Some may have been forced to leave their homes because of Roman colonization that basically kicked them out of where they were and moved them to other places to, to spread the rule of Rome. Others we know were exiles because of their beliefs. They were finding places of safety, even though as we will learn as we go through this letter, that persecution followed them. But all of them, regardless of why they were there, were were strangers in a foreign land. Peter identifies them in these first few verses as those who reside as aliens. If you have the NIV, it says that they are strangers in this world. He's making the point that they were outcasts. They were people who lived on the margins of society. Even though they were believers as citizens of heaven, they were foreigners in this land. Reviled rejected because of their beliefs. So Peter writes to to help them look beyond their circumstances, to to broaden their perspective, to kind of see past the persecution that they were experiencing in their daily life. Because even though they were rejected by society, Peter reminds them, you've been chosen by God. In fact, being chosen by God is precisely why they were aliens in the world. They were called to be a distinctive community with a divinely ordained purpose. Peter will later speak to this in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But as I was preparing uh, for our passage this past week, in working through these first couple of verses, I thought, you know, I, I think we're at some risk when we look at these opening words from Peter and we turn them into a theological argument, uh, arguing about divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility, reasoning about what it means to be chosen and who exactly are the elect. And, and I believe when we do so, we miss the forest for the trees. Because Peter is writing to comfort his audience, not cause confusion. After all, his audience is discouraged. And we know that they are tempted to abandon their faith. But Peter wants them to see that their faith is, is the source of their security. Seeing God's acceptance in the midst of the world's rejection. Knowing that long before their hearts turned to God in faith, God moved towards them in love. And not out of pity or sympathy. I think Peter's purposeful here when he identifies him as God the Father. That he moved towards them with a fatherly affection. It was bold. It was powerful. It was an unrelenting pursuit. Empowered by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Because we know, and what was true for them is true for us, that, that apart from God, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people don't move. Their eyes were blind. Their hearts were cold. But the Spirit of God awakened their affections. And like everyone in the room this morning, they received the good news of the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone. So that instead of wandering aimlessly in, in search for meaning and purpose and in an effort to find satisfaction in the world, they responded to God's loving pursuit. Remember, we talked about this last week. We, we love only because he Loved first. God moves first. We, we, can't, we can't say, I love you, God. The best we can do is say, I love you too. Their belief was a response of obedience, trusting in God and his desire for, the, for their highest good. They looked to the cross where God's love was, was put on public display, the, the place where their arms of their Savior were stretched out wide. It reminds me of the, the old hymn that says, Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, oh sinner, come home. So I want us to think about this in, in the context of what we've learned about Peter and the audience that he's writing to. These, these people were suffering ridicule and rejection because of their faith in Christ. They, they felt alone. They felt abandoned in the world. And Peter steps in and says, oh, but listen, it's just the opposite. You're not rejected. 
You've been chosen. You're not abandoned. You're secure. You are the object of God's fatherly affection. You are made holy by the work of the Spirit. You are forgiven by the sacrifice of the Son. The grace and peace of the Holy Trinity belongs to you in abundance. So look beyond the disappointment of your circumstances and see the wonderful riches of your inheritance. Don't miss this. You belong to God. And he delights in you. Look at how he continues in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter tells them, you are chosen, not rejected. And now here he encourages them to to be hopeful and and not overwhelmed. And in the context, this makes so much sense. Because if you've ever been covered up in chaos where life keeps throwing punches that you can't seem to dodge, you know what it's like to just put your head down in an effort to make it day to day, right? Anybody ever been there? Anybody there right now? I know for me, when I feel overwhelmed, um, I often describe it as losing peripheral vision. And what I mean by that is I get into survival mode. I, I put my head down and I'm just doing everything I can to make it through the day. But I fear that when that happens, I lose sight of the things that are happening around me. And many times they are ways that God is moving in order to get my attention. I think in this letter, Paul is trying to to pull back the lens, to broaden their perspective in an effort to get their attention. He wants them to see the evidence of God's great mercy, to, to look long into the promise of a living hope, knowing that by faith they have been born again, that they are a new creation in Christ with a powerful new possibility in life through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually spoke of what this new life, this being born again means when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Verse 3 says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a smart man, and this didn't make a lot of sense to him. So he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Peter's trying to help Nicodemus and then by that help us understand that you and I were born in the flesh as a descendant of Adam, born into the curse of sin, enslaved by the power in sin, condemned by the penalty of sin. What's born of flesh is flesh. But then Jesus, through his death on the cross, broke the power of sin's control. That's where we find forgiveness of our sins. That's where we 
find the assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where we come alive through the work of the Holy Spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of the Spirit is spirit. Remember, we talked about this last week. This is of utmost importance, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 3. This is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and then He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. And Peter is taking the truth of that Gospel and he's looking at the resurrection and he's saying that that's why we have a living hope. Because we worship a living God. Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and it's why we can look at this. And, and, and we don't have to say to ourselves, well, I don't know exactly how all this is going to work out. I guess we'll just kind of find out when we get there. That's not true. Because what we get there has already been seen. There were hundreds of witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. They witnessed his imperishable life, his fellowship with his disciples. Now Peter is taking that idea and he's saying, and like Christ, we too have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away. It's untouched by death unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It's a living hope of eternal life, undefiled purity, unending beauty, far superior than anything this world has to offer, which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, see, they're perishable. Where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. See, for those who were expelled from their residence, stripped of their rights, ridiculed for their faith, this was an important reminder that they have a new life in Christ that begins right now and they have an inheritance reserved in them, for them in heaven that cannot be taken away. It's a living hope of eternal security protected from the evil of this world. Peter is urging them to look long into this living hope and not lose perspective because they know how the story ends. Now, confession here, a lot of times whenever uh, Tech Basketball is playing, um, I will record the game because I can't watch the game for, for reasons of anxiousness, <laughs> okay? I just get a little too tied up. And so I'll record the game, and if they won, I'll go back and watch the game. And I'll enjoy every stinking minute of it because I know how it ends. But that's the point Peter's trying to make with his audience. You know how this ends. You know what is accomplished on your behalf. Your inheritance reserved for you in heaven. So that means you live life now in a completely different way because you know how the story ends. 
look at how he continues in verse 5. Reserved in, you, in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only do we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven, it says that their life was protected by the power of God. And I think if we're honest and try to look at this passage through the lens of the listener, we might see how this statement would seem a bit of a paradox to Paul's audience, Peter's audience. Because their faith was precisely why their life was being put in jeopardy. They were being persecuted because of their beliefs. So how can they experience the power of God's protection when many of them were experiencing suffering? But I think what Peter's trying to say is that it's a power not protecting them from persecution, but a power through his presence in the midst of their persecution. In fact, the presence of trials in their lives and in ours is what validates, authenticates our faith. Peter will say this in just a couple of verses. We'll look at it next week. I'll give you a little sneak peek. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, think trial, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I suspect many of these early Christians were not all that different than us. Because sometimes I think that when we become a Christian, we think that that means life will go well. And then when it doesn't and we encounter difficulty and we go through suffering, we immediately ask the question, hey, wait a second, what's going on? This is not what I signed up for. I thought Jesus was going to make life easier, not harder. But Peter's saying, listen, we should actually be more concerned with comfort than with conflict in our world. Because comfort in a sin-cursed world is very often the result of some sort of compromise. Being a Christian is never the path of least resistance. God does not promise a life of health wealth and prosperity, no matter what you hear the modern preachers of our day saying. It's just not true. In fact, Jesus was very clear. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. But fear not. I have overcome the world. And in him, you can have the peace and grace that abounds. James is quite clear. Listen to his words in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yes, Peter's audience was being ridiculed and rejected by the world in which they lived, but they had been chosen by God. They were a friend of God, which made them an enemy of the world. They may have felt overwhelmed by their circumstances, but they were born again into a living hope. 
Their salvation was not earned, nor was it secured by their own efforts. It was protected by the very power and promise of God. So right off the bat, I think we need to probably pause and ask ourselves that question. Am I a friend of the world or am I a friend of God? Because here's the reality, it can't be both. Do we live distinctive lives that, that look undeniably different than the world around us? My family and I love watching the, the Chosen series. And uh, there's a quote early in the series. I think it might have been Mary Magdalene. And she said this when somebody asked her about her life. She says, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was Jesus. And so this morning, I want to ask you to ask yourself, is that true for me? In the beginning, we talked about the, the transforming effect on Peter's life, how he went from this impulsive, unpredictable person to being a rock of, of steady faith. And so I want you to take some time this week and consider how your faith in Christ has transformed your life. How you were one way, and now you're completely different. And I want you to be honest about that, because if you are in Christ, you're going to observe some things. And I want you to be encouraged and thankful for the ways that, that God is already conforming you into the image of Christ. How you were one way, and now you're completely different. But as you know, as I will when I do this with you, there will be places where you recognize you still need to grow. There will be places like that for me as well. And so I would just encourage you to be open to the, the areas where maybe we have become too comfortable and have accepted social norms, making choices that really don't align, if we're honest with ourselves, with a, with a gospel-centered life. Let's re-examine the movies we watch, the music we listen to, the clothes that we wear, because often when we stay within the, the trends, it just moves us farther and farther away from Christ. We need to be careful about becoming too comfortable in this world in which we live, which is not our home. In fact, we need to be more concerned with comfort than conflict and suffering. But not only in our individual lives, but also in our community. While the world retreats into the protection of their private lives, we should be living in, in genuine honesty, courageous vulnerability, giving priority of our gathering together, being intentional about pursuing deeper relationships with one another. This past week, we were in the frozen tundra of Fort Worth. It was a nightmare. But we were there for Grant's uh, stock show. He had been so responsible and faithful in raising an animal, and we were glad to celebrate this fun experience with him. But I noticed something very quickly when we began to go through the experience of the Fort Worth stock show. It actually reminded me a lot of Little League Baseball. <laughs> because I coached both of the boys when they were young, and I was always amazed every year at the parents who sat in the stands the things that would come out of their mouth, how they were living through the success of their eight-year-old kid. 
how much money they poured in to these situations. And I looked around me and I thought, this is the exact same thing. I mean, people were living, their identity was in this. They were, and we as a newcomer were an obstacle to their success. It was not a friendly place. But here's what was awesome. We have some good friends who were at Melanie Park years ago, back when we were all in a young couple's class together. Um, they had a child who uh, was born with some serious birth defects, actually died in our Sunday school class one morning. And we shared some deep, deep life together. And it was so good to, to go from a place that really wasn't our people to home that was. It was a safe haven of, of warm fellowship, of, of mutual love and acceptance. And I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that's what I desire for this church family. That it would be a safe haven of warm fellowship. That it would be a place of genuine love and acceptance. Living with honesty and, and vulnerability where nobody has to pretend to be perfect because nobody is. But we can be a distinctive community with a divinely ordained purpose because we too have been called to proclaim the excellencies who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We also are the ones who have been persistently pursued by the fatherly affection of our God, who have been indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is daily, moment by moment, transforming our lives. We have been rescued by the sacrifice of the Son. If there's any place in the world that grace and peace should abound, it's right here in this place. And so I just ask, as we walk through this together, that the Lord would draw us into that deep affection that he has for us that would then overflow in our affection for one another. Will you all pray that with me? Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for five verses of an incredible, powerful, life-changing truth. How you and your great affection for us, move first. You, in your fatherly love, have made yourself known that you've demonstrated that love through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we may be led and dwelled and empowered by that work of the Holy Spirit that we have a new life in Christ that begins right now and that we can live that life full of grace and peace because we know how the story ends. We know we win because you have won. And so, Lord, I just pray that this really does allow for each and every person in this room to experience to a deeper level what it means for our faith to come alive. And as that is true in individual lives, that it would change the way we interact as a community, that we would be distinctly different than the world around us, that this would be a safe haven of warm fellowship, that it would be filled with love and acceptance, that this would be a place where your grace and peace abound, that we would feast on the riches of the inheritance that we have through our faith in Jesus Christ because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. Lord, we're grateful. We're expectant. We look to see how you will move. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. You stand. I, I hope you go listen to that song again this week. Because what a great example of what Brian said this morning. Where we have gospel truth put to a melody. That is our passage this morning. You have a living hope. And we need to sing with great joy and gladness in that truth. It just reminds me, I think of the drivers. Uh, Jay and Dolly both lost their fathers this past week. And they're here this morning because they have a living hope. And they grieve, but not without hope. I think of my friend, Mike Lovinger, who's going to live the reality of this verse in the next few days probably. As he sees his Savior face to face, that inheritance reserved for him in heaven, man, he's about to get every single bit of it. And so, boy, I just hope that you, as this week goes on, realize that, man, there's a whole lot more that's going on than what we see happening in the world around us. So open up your eyes and see the promises unveiled and live with the understanding that you know the outcome. And that should make a difference in your everyday. So let's do that together. Amen? Lord, we just thank you for the chance to celebrate as a family this morning. Safe haven. Warm fellowship. Filled with love and acceptance because of having been loved and accepted by you. Through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was dead and rose again and has become our living hope. Father, may we be a people that are distinctly different than the world around us because our lives have been transformed by a true encounter with the living Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.